The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Exodus chapter 12, we are peering through this lens of the book of Exodus to understand our God and his great salvation. And we want to peer again with the Holy Spirit's help. I'd like to pray, and Joe's going to come and read our passage. Come on up, Joe. This is Psalm 119, verse 18. Let's make this our prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray, Spirit of God, open our eyes to behold wondrous, glorious things out of your word, your instruction, even now, in Jesus' name. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is wrought is bought for money, may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of this house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, no leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be as you, to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt." You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time for, from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. 
or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand are, are frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Thank you, Joe. For that lengthy, challenging reading assignment we gave to you. As you follow along, you might be thinking this is a tedious passage and is irrelevant for my life, but I'd like to contend otherwise. I believe this passage could be summed up in the word you find in chapter 13, verse 3, the word remember. Remember. But not just some mere intellectual remembering, not like remembering arithmetic facts that two plus two equals four. No, this kind of remembering is described well by Tim Keller as keeping the truth real for you. This remembering is keeping the truth real. I thought about the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. It is unlike other memorials in D.C. in that as you enter the Vietnam Memorial, you slope down, you slowly descend like you're walking into a valley of suffering and death, almost like descending into a kind of grave as you are next to dark granite walls etched with 58,000 names of those who died in that war. And people are there tracing those etchings on a piece of paper, often of people they knew or related to or loved. That is not simply an intellectual remembering. That is keeping the cost of that war real. That's what God wants to do here. That's what he's after for you and, and me, because the truth we need becomes easily unreal for us, does it not? It becomes unreal when we stop living in light of the truth. It becomes unreal when the truth stops functioning for us. It becomes unreal when it's no longer making a difference for us, no longer having its intended effect. Can you relate to that? In this passage, God is seeking to help his people then and now keep the truth real in three related ways. And the first is primary, I believe. I would say it is a call here to keep God's rescue real. To first keep God's rescue, his rescue, real. 
God has judged the Egyptian firstborn, passing over the Israelite firstborn. If they had the blood of a lamb dripping down their doorframe of their house, Pharaoh has told the Israelites, get out of Egypt, please. The Israelites have begun their journey, and early in the chapter, we're told a mixed multitude has joined them. Perhaps, perhaps some Egyptians who have come to fear Yahweh through these plagues, the God of Israel, perhaps they're part of that mixed multitude. Perhaps other enslaved peoples have taken the opportunity to get out as well. Regardless, there is a mixed multitude. So God instructs them about future Passover celebrations, both who and how. The last section of chapter 12 is the who. He says non-Israelites may eat the Passover and engage in the larger feast of unleavened bread if, if they take the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, circumcision. Essentially saying, I believe God's promises through Abraham of a land, a promised land, this people and Blessing to all peoples of the earth. That's the who. And then he speaks to the how for these future Passovers. With one new stipulation. It's in verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house, this feast of the Passover. You shall not take any of the flesh of that lamb. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. And notice, you shall not break any of its bones. Keep that in mind. So with this mixed multitude, Moses then reminds them of further instructions about this feast and the Passover, which you get then in chapter 13. Look at chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember. Remember, keep this real. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. And then you have the other details for that feast. In other words, God wants very much, doesn't he? Very much to keep his rescue from becoming unreal to his people, unreal to those who have believed that covenant. So he gives a ritual, an annual ritual. God gives an annual ritual here once again to make sure his rescue does not become unreal. I don't know what you think about rituals, but this makes sense, what God does here. Diane Langberg points out how we learn about the spiritual often through the physical. We learn about the unseen often through the seen. She says we, we grasp something of eternity by looking at the ocean. We get a glimmer of infinity as we look up at the night sky and the countless stars. We grasp something of the shortness of time by the quick disappearance of a vapor. We often learn 
about the spiritual through the physical. So God gives his people rituals like this annual ritual. So, year after year, they would eat this Passover lamb. Year after year, sacrificing a lamb without breaking a single one of its bones. Year after year, eating only unleavened bread for this feast for seven days until over a thousand years go by. And Jesus of Nazareth takes the unleavened bread of this Passover meal and says something that was never uttered before for over a thousand years. This is my body. No one said that during this festival. This is my body. And then he takes a cup, the cup of thanksgiving for this Passover meal, and says something else that was never uttered before. This is my blood of the covenant. In other words, Jesus redefines this festival we see here because it's finding its fulfillment in him. It's interesting, though, Jesus doesn't mention the lamb that was always on the menu. One writer speculates, perhaps that's because the lamb was already sitting at the table with the disciples. So we have our own ritual echoing this passage, the Lord's Supper. And we like to take that ritual here almost every week, not, not to keep some rote exercise, but to keep this rescue real. It's almost like almost like a prescription refill from your doctor. I have to take some medication for my stomach and my esophagus, and I take that every day, and so I have to have a monthly refill from my doctor, and so every month I'm on the website to click, yes, refill medication. Think of this. In light of what Jesus does with this festival, think of this. As the doctor for our souls, the great physician saying, you need regular refills. Regular help to keep his rescue real. But that happens, we hope, through the entirety of our Sunday service. The entirety of our Sunday service is about worshiping God and keeping this rescue in Christ real. And we need that, don't we? Every week, I'm tempted, and friends, you're tempted for this rescue prefigured in this passage. Every week, we're tempted to have that rescue become unreal in ways. Every week, we can face condemnation for our sins. Every week, we can feel overwhelmed by our failures. Every week we can indulge in legalism and think we're earning God's favor somehow. Every week we can strive for approval from others because we're not resting in God's approval in Christ. Every week we can doubt God's care, can we not? Every week we can doubt his love. Every week we can doubt and lack 
joy or gratefulness because this rescue becomes unreal. And so we gather in La Mesa Community Center and worship God and engage in the rituals of our worship to keep this rescue real. That's God, what God was doing here and what he wants to remind us of. I like how Peter Enns puts it. He says, the church's redemption, the church's redemption for her, from her slavery, quote unquote, is a weekly one. Every Sunday, we remember the death and resurrection of Christ, our Passover lamb. So first, friends, let me remind us to come here every Sunday like that for a weekly refill from the great physician, the doctor of your souls who loves you. Every week, come finding help to keep this rescue real, celebrating the death and resurrection of our Passover lamb. I need that. You need that. And as you do, two other things will be kept real for you. So secondly, keep God's ownership real. Keep God's ownership of you real. Keep God's ownership real. You may have noticed that God here then adds a, a related statute. It's introduced in chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is what? Mine, God says. The firstborn were just rescued from the first Passover, in the first Passover, by that Passover lamb. So God says, they are mine. I don't want you to forget this. Let's keep that real as well. And he elaborates beginning in verse 11. See the same idea in verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, that promised land, you shall set apart to the Lord, all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's, shall belong to him. Again, because they have just been redeemed in the Passover itself. Now, firstborn here, like myself, this is not a chance to gloat over your siblings. The firstborn here represents other offspring, both girls and boys. It's kind of like the captain of the football team coming out to the middle of the field before the game and representing the entire team at the coin toss. So the firstborn represents the other offspring and represents that claim God makes on all of them in verse 2. They are mine. God owns them all. They are his. They have a new master. They are under new ownership, not of Pharaoh, but of the God who loves them. Now, friends, again, this is not irrelevant for us. Keeping God's ownership real is vital 
and has far-reaching implications for every single person here, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. You are, all of us are, owned by God by creation, first of all. We all belong to God by creation. When Jesus is asked by individuals trying to test him about paying taxes to Caesar, he says, show me a coin. Give me a a Roman coin. And he says, whose image, whose likeness is on this coin? They say Caesar's. So Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now that's, of course, an important passage about our relationship to human government, but the implications are far more profound. Listen to it again. Render to Caesar what has Caesar's likeness. Render to God what has God's image and likeness. What's that? Uh, Everybody in this room. He owns by creation the totality of our being. This is true for everyone here by creation. And it's so countercultural today. God has not given you the right to decide what's right and wrong for you. God has not delegated the right to you or me to decide what's good or bad for you. But like those in this passage, the believer in the Passover lamb is doubly owned by God by creation, and by redemption. That's what's being communicated here. God's ownership by redemption. I mentioned last week 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, where the Apostle Paul addresses a biblical sexual ethic. Now, not a controversial issue in our day, is it? He addresses a biblical sexual ethic, and on that issue says the following, quote, you are not your own. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price, your Passover lamb. So glorify God in your body. That's God's gracious ownership of you by redemption. Has that become unreal for you in ways? Are you facing any temptations or challenges or difficulties where his ownership in Christ has become a bit unreal? I mean, let's just apply that passage to single adults. You are not your own. Single adults, you are not your own in your relationship with roommates or friends or a romantic partner. Why? For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in how you relate to them, speak to them, and prioritize their interests over your own. That's God's ownership by redemption when it's real for you. Apply this to marriage. God's ownership applied to marriage, husbands and wives. You are not your own in marriage. 
For you were bought with a price, the life of the Passover lamb. So glorify God in how you speak to your spouse. Glorify God in how you treat them and how you love them sacrificially. God's ownership of us in marriage could be transformative for a marriage. You are not your own. Apply God's ownership to parenting. You are not your own in your parenting. And you don't, parents, you don't own your kids. He does. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in how you raise your children, not exasperating them, but ministering God's grace over and over and over. Kids and teens, apply this as well. If you are a Christian, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in how you relate to your parents, honoring them, loving them, respecting them. Apply God's ownership by redemption to your workplace. Catch this. You are not your own in your workplace or your vocation. Why? You were bought with a price, so glorify God by working unto him without grumbling, but magnifying him in all you do. Apply God's ownership by redemption as reflected in this passage to your driving. Oh, be careful, Tab. When you're in your car, you are not your own in your driving. You were bought with a price. So as hard as it may be, glorify God now you are courteous to other drivers, even if they cut you off. Are you seeing how powerful this truth is that is displayed here, depicted here in this passage? God says over the totality of our lives in verse 2, you are mine in light of his rescue. This can be transformative. And friends, this can be a massive, massive comfort. Recall what we recited in our singing worship, Heidelberg Catechism question one. Recall the question, what is your only comfort, only comfort in life and in death? Remember the answer? That I am not my own. Now listen to this comfort. I am not my own, but belong, owned, body and soul. I belong to my faithful Savior. He paid for my sins. He set me free from the devil's tyranny. He watches over me that not a hair can fall from my head without the Father's will. All things must work together for my salvation. He assures me of eternal life and makes me willing to live for him. Is that not a comfort? Your only comfort in life and death, that you are not your own. You belong to him, body and soul. That's God's ownership. Keep that real. It will minister to you greatly. Friends, keep God's rescue real such that you keep God's ownership here real. And there's one more thing God would have his people keep very real in this passage. Keep God's power real. Keep God's power, his power real. 
four times God mentions the ground, the basis for what he's talking about here. Notice them with me, please. Chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, underline that, by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Verse 9. Verse 9, for with a strong hand, there it is again, a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Verse 14, when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. One more time, verse 16, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes, for by, guess what? By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Do you think God is trying to keep something real for his people here? Four times. By my strong hand, I delivered you out of Egypt, out of slavery. That's like putting it in bold, italics, and underlined in your Bible. God roots it all in his power. He's keeping real for them. Track with me. He's keeping real how their rescue was by his power alone, that his power alone brought them out of Egypt, that his power alone redeemed from slavery, that his power alone carried the day. Why do you think he's doing that? To prepare them for the future. Because it's going to get hard. Did you see two times, verses 5 and 11, he mentions the land. That's what's in view, the promised land. He's preparing his people then and certainly preparing us as we journey to the ultimate promised land. He's preparing us because it ain't always going to be easy journeying to that land. You could amen that if you like. <laughs> it's not easy journeying to the land, it's hard. It might be really hard for you right now. It's going to get hard for them. We're going to see that. But God is preparing his people. He is caring for his people. He's saying, my people, by my power alone, I delivered you already so do what for the future? Trust me. Trust me. What do you think he's saying to us? The same thing. By his power alone in Christ, he has delivered you. So he's saying to us, friends, trust him. Keep his power real by trusting Charles Blondin was a tightrope walker. He's best known for crossing Niagara Gorge near Niagara Falls on a tightrope. True story. It was August 1859. And as you can imagine, a crowd had gathered to watch. Blondin reportedly said to the crowd, how many of you 
believe I can walk across this gorge on a tightrope. It's over a thousand feet, as I recall. The people said, we believe you. We believe you can do it. We believe you have the power, the ability to walk across this entire gorge on a tightrope. Blondin said, who wants to ride on my back? Now that's trust. Do you really trust my power to do this? Surprisingly, no one volunteered. So Blondin had his manager, Harry Colcord, get on his back. But he said to his manager, when we get out on that rope, don't you dare trying to balance on your own. I'm the great Charles Blondin. There's no more Harry Concord, only Blondin. And I think we have a picture of this. That's his manager on his back as Harry, uh, sorry, Charles Blondin walks on a tightrope. That's what God is after for you and me. He wants to build in us for this difficult pilgrimage to the promised land that kind of trust in his power, in his ability, that you would get on his back as it were, that you would not try to live this life and this pilgrimage out on your own, but that you would trust his power to carry the day and get you across that canyon and deliver you, that you would trust his power to deliver on all his promises. Why? For his strong hand has already delivered you once. That's what's happening in this passage. Keeping his power real because you're keeping his rescue real. I mean, youth or kids or guests, this is saving faith. Relying on Jesus Christ alone to get you there. Relying on Jesus alone to take away your sins and bring you to God. But this is the life of faith for all of us. No exceptions. Trusting God for the present and the future because by his strong hand, his power alone, he has already rescued you. So I want to ask you, where is God calling you to trust in him like that? Where has his power become unreal for you? Has his power become a bit unreal in your current trial or challenge? Whatever is maybe grieving you right now. Has his power become a bit unreal in your marriage or for your kids or in your single life as you relate to other people, your friends, your roommates? Has his power become a bit unreal related to your health? Do you, do you find his power a bit unreal in getting you to that ultimate promised land? Has your heavenly hope begun to fade? Christian, listen. His strong hand has already delivered you in his son. So he's saying, trust me. Get on my back. 
I mean, he's here, isn't he? The Son of God is here in the Lamb, sacrificed, whose bones were not to be broken. None of his bones broken on the cross. So the Apostle John writes, this fulfills the Scripture, our very passage. The Son is here. The Son of God is here in the consecration of the firstborn. Joseph and Mary, in Luke chapter 2, do our passage for their firstborn son, Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness, but he's the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1, the preeminent one. In his son, in God's strong hand, in the flesh, he has already delivered you. So get on his back, trust him, He's going to get you by his power alone to the ultimate promised land. He's going to make all things new. One day, you can trust his power for everything in between. Keep his rescue real. That you might keep God's ownership real and his power real. Let's pray to that end. And maybe bring friends to the Lord even now where you need his help, where you've forgotten, lost sight of his ownership, where his rescue feels to you like a vague memory, or you need to believe it for the first time. You can flee to Christ right now by faith. Turn from going your own way and trust in him. And in the silence of your heart, in this moment, cry out to him to bring you to God. Or for whatever challenge, issue, difficulty you're facing where you need to remember his ownership and keep real his power. Oh Lord, our God, thank you for this lens of Exodus, where we see you and where we see such a clear picture of what you've done for us. Would you help us now, Holy Spirit, to apply, to live in light of what we see of you here and what we see of your rescue here? Would you help me and help us to live in the good of your glorious ownership and your saving power? We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.